Episode 5 Book of the Dead This is Casey James. I don't know where exactly I am. I don't know what's going on. There's a lot I don't know. But I'm going to figure it out. The light is a house. More semi-abandoned hunting lodge than friendly cottage in the woods in terms of vibe, but it's a building, and there's a light in the window. So I figure there must be someone there. With my luck, it'll be more cultists. The house itself is sizable, half-timbered, with crumbling stonework held together by a truly uncanny amount of ivy. A hedge-bordered lane leads from the woods up to the front door, and there's a bit of lawn off the side, although it doesn't look as though anyone really takes much care of it. The grass is long and choked with weeds, which have crept into the lane as well and grow in profusion under the hedge. I can see all of this fairly easily. Although it's fully dark by now, the moon is close to full and very bright. Deacon and I trudge up the lane to the front door and knock. A servant opens the door a few moments later and eyes us suspiciously, but he lets us in without a word. I don't know what to make of that, really. The servant, butler, I suppose, is tall and dark, and rather puts me in mind of Lurch from the Adams family, only less friendly. With no better options, we follow him down the hallway into a study which seems to be the only room actually lit in the house. The butler doesn't turn any lights on as we go, so it's all walking in the dark in the creepy house, watching our step in case of stairs or carpets or whatever other tripping hazards are around. The butler leaves us at the open door to the study, and we sidle in, expecting to find someone there but the room is empty. There are voices coming from an adjoining sitting room, though. Well, Morris, did you have any luck? I don't suppose you found the gold, says a masculine voice from the other room. Nothing, says another voice, presumably this Morris person. No gold, nothing salvageable. The whole thing was a hoax. Well, not all of it, I suppose. I broke into the sealed chamber and found the mummy. And the jewel? There's a pause. Then that same voice says, You really did it, just as Von Junst described it too. I don't care for it myself, Del. It looks like a heart for God's sake. It looks like a toad, you lily-livered excuse for a grave robber. Just like the drawings in Von Junst's book. Well, you're welcome to it, says Morris. Had enough trouble getting it through customs. I don't want it in my house a minute longer. There's a thunk. As of something heavy being placed on a desk or table. We should maybe go. Suggests Deacon quietly. 
that sounds like a conversation they might not want overheard. You'll have to hold on to it a bit longer, Morris. Says Del. And the book as well. You remember Ehrlich Khan? I am not likely to forget him, Morris says slowly. Self-proclaimed Lord of the Dead, wasn't he? Ran more than half the gangs and criminal societies in the state. Might have had them all if his own thugs hadn't turned on him. Ehrlich Khan has returned, says Del. What? What are you talking about? I saw him die a year ago, and so did you. I saw his hood fall apart as Ali ibn Suleiman struck with that sword of his, says Del in a low voice. I saw him roll to the floor and lie still. And then the house went up in flames, the roof fell in, and only the charred bones were ever found amongst the ashes. Nevertheless, Erla Khan has returned. So I can't have the jewel anywhere in town for a few weeks, until he's gone to sniff around elsewhere, nor the Book of the Dead either. You understand me, Morris? Is he after it? Asks Morris. Why is it any safer here? He won't come here, says Del. Deacon and I slowly back out of the study as this conversation happens. So we are right in the doorway, just outside it even. When a dark-haired man with a truly astonishing moustache storms out of the sitting room and past us. He is followed a moment later by a somewhat better-dressed blonde man who, to my misfortune, I recognise as the local constable. Kingsport is a small town with a low crime rate. It does have a police station, but there really are just the two officers, and I think a secretary of some sort who takes calls and passes on messages. Constable Delaney, Dell must be a shortening, stops off at the hotel, which doubles as the local pub, most nights, for a drink after work. So I've met him, and he's met me. I see the recognition in his face as we pause eye to eye. Then Deacon says, Constable, so glad we found you. There's something not right up on the cliffs. Always is, this time of year, says Delaney gruffly. You kids shouldn't be going up there. He doesn't comment on the snake headdress, which Deacon is still wearing, or on our muddied and scratched up state of dress. We weren't, says Deacon, with this fresh-faced, wide-eyed college kid expression that says he wouldn't lie to an authority figure, which I know to be untrue, but I'm kind of impressed. I didn't realise he could lie that well. Unless it isn't really him, again. I give him a narrow-eyed, sideways glance, not that I'd be able to tell by looking. It's dangerous out at night right now, says Delaney. Better to be holed up indoors somewhere. Not that being indoors will save you from some damn fool dropping a live cobra in through the skylight. This last part, he says mostly to himself. I don't know if he's even really aware that he spoke out loud. A cobra? I say. 
unable to help myself. Through a skylight? The constable harumphs and wiggles his moustache. I kid you not, he wiggles the ends of it up and down. I don't even know how you'd do that. His isn't as impressive as the other man, presumably this Morris character, but it's a decent attempt in itself. It looks a little bit like a blonde caterpillar sitting under Laney's upper lip. I shouldn't be telling you this, he says eventually. But it's Erlik Khan, crime kingpin, calls himself the Lord of the Dead. I thought he was dead, but it seems not. Three of his former criminal compatriots have been found murdered this week, with his signature on the bodies or the crime scene. No sign so far that he's going to go after the general public, but you can never be too careful. Three murders in a week? Why haven't we heard about this? Asks Deacon, quite reasonably. Don't know, lad. Not been reading the newspapers, have you? Dreaming. I mutter quietly to Deacon. He blinks at me, then grins, with this conspiratorial glint in his eye that reignites my doubts about him all over again. I resist the urge to edge a step back, although it makes my skin crawl to just do nothing. Deacon's grin gets a touch wider, like he knows, which only makes it worse. Outside, I can hear something moving around, and the clop of hooves on the packed dirt of the overgrown yard. It seems odd to me, but probably not odd in the sense of a dangerous, possibly murderous criminal. Deacon, however, jerks his head around to stare at the window closest to where the sound is coming from. That's no horse, says Deacon. Morris doesn't own any, no, says Delaney. Then everything goes to hell. Something comes in through the window. I catch the barest glimpse of it as it charges past me, and I wish I hadn't caught that much. The thing is a nightmarish agglomeration of parts, horse-like in size and in its general shape, but with far too many legs. I am reminded of a spider, or a beetle, although it moves too fast for me to count the legs. And its mouth, a mouth that opens up much, much too wide for a horse. More like an alligator, the entire front of its face yawning open and full of teeth. Every lamp shatters along with the window as it leaps inside, leaving us in darkness, with only the skittering clop, clip, clop crash of its hooves and claws. It has claws as well, somehow. On the hardwood floor, as it moves past us and deeper into the house, After a few tense, frozen seconds, Deacon switches on his flashlight. Delaney has his pistol out, although it's pointed at the ground. Deacon points the light down as well, 
tracing over the clawed-out gouges and heavy hoofprints in the floor. Morris. Says Delaney. And he rushes out of the room, following the horse beast into the darkened house. I think you were right, I say. We should go. Not yet, says Deacon. I think we need to find that book. It takes me a second to work out which book he means. The book they were talking about before, I ask. The Book of the Dead. Deacon just nods, and I shake my head at him. Not that I'm going to stop him, or even try to stop him. I mean, far from it, I'm going with him. I just think we're both being idiots now. Even with the thing? I ask, to make sure he's really suggesting what I think he's suggesting. Sure. We can find the book while they're busy dealing with it. <sighs> I sigh. It doesn't take long to determine that the book is not in the study. It's not in the adjoining sitting room either. But we do find the key Delaney was talking about. The jewel. Come to think of it, he never actually called it a key. I don't know why I think of it that way. It's a ruby pendant shaped like a human heart. Sat right in the middle of the coffee table in the sitting room. There's no way the thing is meant to be a toad either no matter what Delaney said. It is the shape and size of a heart, made of glittering red stone, strung somehow onto a heavy golden chain. There's also a framed poster on the wall from some old production of The Wizard of Oz, showing Oz the great and powerful sitting on his throne, while behind a green curtain a dark-haired woman whispers into a megaphone. She's wearing the same ruby heart pendant around her neck. The deacon is currently holding at arm's length by its chain. You should take this, he says. I don't want to touch it. It reminds me of the eerily beating heart in the study of the bridge house. Go on, says deacon. I'd really rather not, I tell him still not reaching out to take the thing. He shrugs and says, It's a key, Casey. You don't have to like it to use it. Besides, you don't want Erlit Khan to get hold of it. He seems to have forgotten that he doesn't know anything about Erlit Khan, beyond what Delaney was telling us a few minutes ago. But I suppose that is how dreams work. Deacon moves his hand slightly, so the pendant wobbles in the air and glitters as it catches the light from his flashlight. I really don't want to take it. But I also really don't want to stay here and argue about it while there's some horrific horse beast crashing around somewhere in the house. So I take the pendant and shove it in my pocket. They're going to notice that it's gone. I say. 
Deacon grins at me, the flashlight casting his face into Halloween shadows, and says, They'll think the creature took it. He takes a letter opener from the mantelpiece and proceeds to gouge a set of disturbingly authentic-looking claw marks in the table. Then he carefully puts the letter opener back where he found it. I don't know if I'm impressed or really, really creeped out. I eye the knife, which I hadn't even noticed until Deacon picked it up. So, <laughs> I say, going to murder me in the dark? He laughs. <laughs> and there's something just a little bit not right about the sound. But it could be my paranoia again. Although, is it paranoia if they really are out to get you? Of course not, Casey. He says. You're much too interesting for that. Come on, the book will be in the basement. Then he walks out of the sitting room, leaving me gaping like a suffocating fish in the dark. By the time I follow him out of the sitting room, he's nowhere to be seen, and I am alone in the darkened study, with moonlight and fog seeping in through the broken window. In case it's not already abundantly clear, I am not a fan of mist or fog at this point, if I ever was. So no, I do not head outside to the moonlit forest with the vampire fog and the cultists and the, I don't know, the horned man, Pan, whatever. I just, no, no. I don't need to get back to Kingsport that badly. I go further into the house. At least there's only one weird, horrific creature in here, as far as I know, and it doesn't seem overly interested in me. That said, I don't go upstairs, where I can hear muffled crashing and the odd clop scrape of hoof claws. Deacon, if it was Deacon, said the book would be in the basement, so that's Probably where he's gone, if he's here at all still. I mean, I have no idea when or how actual Deacon was replaced by not Deacon the last time. So who even knows? Maybe he woke up. Anyway, I head through the house. And when I find a set of stairs leading downwards from the kitchen, I go down them. I count this time as I descend a good sixty stairs, spiralling down a windowless stairwell. The lights down here are still working, which is nice, although they're dim and slightly red-toned, which is less nice. The basement is a big, open-plan space with rough stone walls and a high ceiling. There are a bunch of shelves down here most of them stacked with cans and jars of various things. Mostly food, presumably. Although there are a few big jars that look like old-fashioned biology specimens in formaldehyde. 
Deacon is there, in the corner furthest from the stairs, going through the contents of a set of filing cabinets. He stands up as I come around the corner and glances over at me, shining the flashlight in my eyes again. Wondered where you'd gone, he says, smiling. Then he drops the light and adds, Sorry. I shrug. Took me a while to catch up with you, I say. Deacon gives me a slightly odd look over his shoulder. I stare back at him, frowning. The gemstone eyes of the snake headdress wink and glitter in the dim reddish light. He shakes his head and turns back to the filing cabinets. Look what I found, he says. I wander over, expecting a book, or maybe some letters or papers that have drawn his interest. But what I see is an ornate, round hand mirror, lying on its own in one of the drawers of the filing cabinet. There's cloth piled around it where Deacon has obviously pulled some sort of wrapping or cover away to see what was in there. I make some sort of noise of vague interest, and Deacon laughs. No, look properly, he says. Obligingly, I look into the drawer, into the surface of the mirror. My reflection looks back at me, oddly pale and tinted red from the light, with the pure black sclera of something absolutely inhuman. My breath freezes in my throat as she moves, blinking at me when I know I didn't blink. Her mouth curving in a smile that I am not smiling. Ask it a question, says Deacon, still in the tone of someone showing off a new toy or a clever trick. Where's the book? I ask, but what comes out of my mouth is, who is the fairest of them all? That would be telling, says my reflection. Then it grins at me, and its eyes are all wrong, solid black from corner to corner. I stare at it for a second, then I take a big step backwards and look at Deacon. What? I say, and then I stop, because I don't even know which question to ask first. It didn't do that for me, he says sheepishly. I wait. When he doesn't elaborate, I ask, what did it do for you? He looks at the mirror and says, Where is the Book of the Dead? It doesn't respond, and I shrug and wait. Deacon beckons me closer, and when I edge a half-step nearer again so that I can just peer into the drawer and see the mirror, it shows a dark, wood-lined space with a leather-bound book in it lying on top of some papers. Oh, I say, 
Yeah, I asked it what we should do next, and it showed me the filing cabinet over there. But I'm not sure what I'm looking for. He points at a large wooden filing cabinet at the far end of the room, which he's clearly already been searching through. Half the drawers are open, but most of them look empty, or nearly empty. Why did you ask it that? I ask, as I walk over to look at the filing cabinet. I don't know. Says Deacon. Seemed like the thing to do. There are scuff marks on the floor next to the corner of the filing cabinet, and I crouch down to look more closely. Couldn't get the bottom drawer open. I think it's locked. I try the bottom drawer anyway. The red stone pendant in my pocket warms and pulses suddenly. Thump, thump. Thump, thump. Like a heartbeat. The solid wood drawer slides open. Inside it, there is a small, leather-bound book and a brass button. The sort you push, not something you'd stitch into clothing. It's set into the base of the drawer behind the book. I pick up the book, although the feel of it makes my skin crawl, and let it fall open to a random page. It's a list of names. I read them out loud. Walter Marsh, Obed Marsh, Mortimer Evanston, Tonna Morris, Kezia Gilman. The first three are crossed out, leaving Morris and Kezia as the only names still on the page. Flicking back a page, all the names are crossed out. I don't recognize any of them. I glance up at Deacon, who's just watching me. He shrugs. I shrug back. I guess this is the book, I say. Deacon doesn't reply for a few seconds. Then he says, Well, what now? I don't know, really. I don't want to go back upstairs with that creature still in the house. And I don't want to go outside to be chased by cultists and that whatever it was, the horned man in the woods. I don't particularly want to just stay here either. So I sigh. And then... I reach into the open drawer and push the button. <laughs>